We're not going to try to to land a plane with Psalm 119 today. We're going to get to it, but we're not going to get, I'm going to try to rush and get all the way through it. And a few new things as I'm discovering this last, this last stanza, going through our 22 stanzas, and even as, as we walk through it, just uh, going from the, the 19th and 20th letter with the, the cries, where he cries out in verse 145 with his whole heart, we see the parallel between those two stanzas, verse 19, well, uh, stanza 19 and 20. And then coming into stanza 21, of course, you know there's 22 letters, so we're arriving on our, on our last one today, and we started number 21 last week. So we go from the, the cries, crying out to God with your whole heart, to this, this affirmation that we find in stanza number 21, Verses 161 through 168, these, these affirmations that he has, that he makes. And then he comes on the final stanza with this, with this doxology, this praise to God. And actually, there, there's, there's two things that, that I, I found and I've, I've discovered in these last stanza. One is this, this back and forth, what might almost seem like an apparent contradiction, because he's affirming some things here, and yet he's crying out to God here. Here he says, I'm wondering, and he'll end the, the last part of the last stanza about wandering like, like a sheep. And then previously he says, I don't wander. And so you see that this contrast you have, and they're not contradictory. It's really reflecting the tension between the man's affirming or exerting himself and yet never trusting himself. So he exerts himself and, and affirms truth, and yet he always humbly bounces that with a humble, with humility saying, and yet I know, Lord, without you, uh, I, I need you. And he makes that, that balance between affirming these truths and yet expressing humility in doing so as well. And then he finishes with the shepherding picture in the, in the last stanza and uh, finishes with that for us. So we're going to go to, let's go ahead and, and go to verse 161 and pick back, there, pick, up, pick back up there and see these six indications, these six affirmations of uh, integrity that he makes in this stanza, and then we'll, we'll begin our doxology in verse 169 through 176 and finish there. Now, we'll talk to you next week. Uh, I don't have Mother's Day. I guess I should have a, a Mother's Day lesson, but that's for someone else to do probably. We're going to do two things. I don't know if Mother's Day, I guess parenting can help mothers as well. Uh, two, two subjects I want to embark on before we go to our summer series. We're going to hit our summer series about being peacemakers in June. Uh, first week in June, start with that. So we have a little overlap there. Uh, one is parenting through the ages, how to parent through the different phases of your child's life. Uh, it would be awkward if you try to spank your 22-year-old. So there's probably, you know, or put, so, so you have to, how do we mentor, coach, how do we grow in our parenting and what does that look like as we, as they grow, and how do you keep pouring into their lives? It's, it's amazingly, uh, it, it's it's a beautiful thing to discover, when you walk through uh, mentoring and coaching your children, versus just instructing them as they as they as you did when they were young children. So, kind of discussing some of that, and hopefully get some of your input in that as well, and open up some questions to that. And the other one is. Parenting in a, in a hostile environment. How do you parent in a hostile environment? Not just society as a whole, but when you're at odds with family. You know, how do you how do you engage? How are you part of a godless 
society and sometimes a godless family and how do you engage and be part of that with your kids you keep your children in the bubble and you can't you can't see family you don't know family we don't go to anything how, how do you balance those things out what are some criteria and we'll, we'll try to address those and uh, get our, our our resident expert Mark Hager to give us all his 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 thoughts on, on those things as well so looking forward looking forward to that well, not the Mark Hager comments, but the rest, anyway. <laughs> Amen. All right, verse 161. It begins by saying, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rule. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and I keep your testimonies for all my ways are before you. So we find here... Actually, no, no request, no prayer request in these verses, but a deluge of an author's personal declarations of integrity. He makes these, these proclamations, and we see six indications of his integrity uh, in, in this stanza, and then he'll, he'll end with a praise to God and a reliance on God. He'll balance that with that in the, in the final stanza. We see a, a progressive development of how one's description of one's attitude towards, towards God's law will impact and has impacted his actions. His, what he believes to be true impacts how he lives his life, and the outpouring of that becomes the, the evidence of that he, de, he describes as here. So we started in verse first, we just started in the first two last week. We talked about the first one, uh, godly fear. So the first indication of integrity is that godly fear prevails over human pressure. Godly fear prevails over human pressure. He says princes. Now princes is a term to to describe those in authority, those that are powerful, powerful people harass me without cause. Now sometimes we, if we're honest about things, we draw persecution because of our own shortcomings we we said something we shouldn't say and actually with age what i've discovered is one reason why i'm, I'm slow to speak is not because i'm smarter it's just because i'm tired of apologizing to people and so i said i don't have to apologize to that person i'm going to watch out what i say and uh the, the the reality is knowing that yeah sometimes we we put ourselves in situations that we, we bring about our own persecution by our own actions our own attitudes but here, the, the, the cause of this and the, the struggle is that these powerful people persecute him without cause, but my heart stands in awe of, of your words. We addressed this last week just talking about what makes this particularly painful. Uh, this persecution, what makes it painful is the idea that it's without cause. Most people, when they, when they I'm going to use the term whine because I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about you specifically, right? But when we whine about things, um, we whine about things because we think somehow, ultimately, what happened to me is unfair. It's not just. Actually, there's one thing I really find interesting in, in the final stanza, in the theology in the final stanza, not only does he address the sovereignty of God over the affairs of man, he also describes the sovereignty of God over his thoughts and the understanding. So I thought that was 
interesting way of finishing the, his praise to God. I say that because in our, in our sense of, of fairness, that this is unfair, there's always a sense that somehow it's not deserving. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I mean, I don't deserve this. I mean, sure, I could have done things better, but I mean, come on, not, not this. So he, he describes persecution yet, but yes, without cause, that he did not bring about himself. And the response Yes, of this painful persecution in this case that was unjust, uncaused. And we, listen, we, we live in a world where it, we will be persecuted unjustly. We will be called, you know, and there's probably something, no f- more frustrating thing to me whenever I'm, I'm dealing with people that feel like, oh, you're the school. Oh, you're so unloving. And you want, you want to react to that because you do so much to love on people and to love on their children. You do so much to love on people and, and do the right thing, and yet... When something doesn't go exactly the way they want to, or you didn't concede something, or you had to dismiss their child for some obvious significant problem, then you become all of a sudden unloving. And all th- everything in you wants to raise up and, and defend that because you're, you're unjustly accused. And so he, he describes that, but his response is that of, of our response. What's his response? My heart. My heart stands in all of your words, which means he, in this godly, you could have this fear of, of man and how he persecutes you, but he stands in awe of God. We heard this term, you've probably heard this term used, you know, I stand before an audience of one. When I read that book by Ott, and you talk about being before an audience of, of one, that has just really marked my mind and how I, I, I deal with people and different situations because ultimately yes we are before people right and you can be you can be we are it'd be foolish to think we're not impacted by people's thoughts and motives or people's what they're going to say about it make a decision i mean jane will be first to tell you about her her mom is black and white right some of you have parents or in-laws that are everything everything is black and white there's no gray i hate it or i love it she knows if she gets something, she knows that her mother is going to hate it or she's going to love it. It doesn't matter if she's 92-year-old or 94-year-old, sitting in bed, can't move, can't do anything about it. And her mom will make this little clever statement. So what does that mean to you when she says that? What she says is, I don't get it. It must mean something to you because I don't get where you got that. It's amazing, isn't it, how, wow, what, what people are going to, to think and say, the pressures we might we might feel from that. We feel that about how we educate our children, buying a new car when you're your father. I would never buy a new car. What a waste of money. It depreciates in two years. And you're going to buy, sign a new car. And the, the, the pressure you feel for what parents are going to think about. It, it's amazing how ministry-wise, wow, when we decide to, to come back to the States and serve here, the pressure we knew we were going to get from abandoning the field. My father's perception was, you know, you're called to France. That's the calling of a lifetime. If you leave France, then you're abandoning your call. Knowing you're making those kind of decisions and you feel, but ultimately, here's what saves you. It's not the rationale. It's not sitting down and having this rational conversation. It's not convincing someone of one thing or another. It's sitting there understanding, I stand before God. I stand before an audience of one. And I stand in awe before him and his word and his truth and who God is and what he desires for me. And I want to be faithful and obedient and truthful to that. That right there trumps everything. That right there 
makes everything else fade away, be swept away, and, you st and it brings such clarity to what I should be doing. It brings such clarity to decisions I've got to make because I stand before a fear, a holy fear, a righteous fear of the one and only true God. So that, that right there just sweeps everything else away. So he stands in awe of your words. Now remember, we, we talked about this a few times, just one of the truths that he brings out in the Psalms that we, we see collectively as we're walking through every 22 stanzas. What do we see collectively what? He sees God and his word as one. God and his word are one. So he sees his word, he sees God. He sees God, he sees his word. He's true to one, he's true to the other. There's no room, there's no room for, for there's no gap there, there's no foot in the door there. Those two things are one and the same. So he says he stands in all at, in all of your words. Then the second thing, um, well, just the, the quote from Spurgeon, I'll, I'll repeat that to finish this thought here on, verse, on this verse 161. Spurgeon says, comment on, on this uh, I, I think most of you know Spurgeon wrote commentaries and psalms so called the treasure of David um, and so he says this he says we are not likely to be disheartened by persecution or driven by it into sin meaning persecution can drive us to, to, into sin if the word of God continually has supreme power over our minds as the word of God has supreme power and authority over our minds we're less likely, not likely, to be disheartened by persecution or driven into sin by it. The second thing I see here as well as this declaration of integrity that he has in verse, in verse 162. He says, Godly contentment rivals human materialism. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great, great spoil. Or some of you have the translation, maybe you have great treasure. He says, I I, I rejoice in your word like one who's discovered and received a great treasure. Isn't it something that we, we need to be reminded that the, the word of God that we have is, is a great treasure? And actually the word that's being used, I think it's kind of, um, kind of a, a beautiful thing. The, the term, and the reason why I say this is because when you're reading a text, I'm always thinking, okay, what are they hearing? The words are being used. What are they hearing? Well, when he talks about the, the spoils, normally that term is used for what? Well, in Isaiah uh, chapter 9 and other places, he talks about dividing the spoil. Spoil usually is a term for the spoils of war, the treasures of war, which means treasures and spoils that you've conquered, that you've gained through victory. So as you're hearing this, he says, you know, uh, he talks about the, the idea that I rejoice in your word like one who's discovered a great treasure, great great victory is gained, and the price of that, or the fruit of that rather, is the spoils of war. One of the commentators says this, he says, the spoils point to the fruits of victory. The, our, our reward, the spoils of the, of, the, of the war, are found in the great treasure in God and his word. That is my treasure. That is my reward. Every battle that I'm fighting against the princes and the authorities and powers that persecute me, that, that wage war against us, that wage war against everything that we're passionate about, the great reward of that, the spoils of that is what? Is God's word and finding refuge in God's word and consequently finding refuge in God himself. What a, what a beautiful picture of great spoils being found Obviously, his, his obedience to God's word is evidence that he values and treasures God's word. 
you've had your discussions with your children, trying to convince them of the merits of something, how frustrating is that? Some of you, as you rejoice in having young teenagers who already know everything, it's, it's beautiful. They're so smart. And you try not to be sarcastic. Oh, yeah, last time you planned a wedding. Oh, that's right, you've never planned a wedding. Okay, let me, let me help you with that. Or last time you bought, oh, that's right, you've never done that. Let me, let me help you with that. It's amazing how brilliant they are. And you, try, and you try to do what? You try to show them the merits of something. Listen, here, here's, the, here's why you don't want to, here's why debt is dangerous. You walk into this, you think just doing this, this, and this. Or here, here's how, and, and you try to help them navigate decisions they're making. And you try to show them the merits of something based on what? Based on the bigger picture, based on, on where they're heading, based on where they're going, based on a lot of things. The number one thing we need to be doing is directing our children towards realizing the great treasure they have in God's Word. I can't tell you how many people see God's Word, young and old, see God's Word as something that is keeping them from the spoils or keeping them from riches or keeping them from a good time or keeping them from having joy. His, his joy is found in a godly fear and then his response in verse 162 is, I rejoice. We see that rejoicing that is found in discovering and loving God's word and finding great spoils, his, the wealth of God's word. It's amazing how we find ourselves in a situation consistently where we're persecuted under trial and we pit ourselves against God's word as if that God's word is going to keep us from being what we really want to be or do what we really want to do. Instead of embracing it, Embracing it as God's treasured, as the spoils of victory. Meantime, I've encouraged people to, to look beyond that, beyond that situation, that mountain, and look beyond that. Be true to God's word. Being true to God is being true to his word. Be true to God's word, and beyond that, the spoils of victory are there, but you've got to fight that battle. And you've got to align yourself with God, and you've got to align yourself with his word. That's a daily battle. And it means going to the Word. It means going to the Word. It means loving His Word, knowing His Word, and keep on plowing that ground consistently. Verse 163. Godly commitment provides a perspective on human injustice. Godly commitment provides perspective on human injustice. He says, I hate falsehood. I love instruction. You see this this, this, this dichotomy here, this contrast here, is he, he points it to two extremes, meaning the more you, and actually the reality of the fact is this, the more you hate one, the more you'll love the other. The deeper you go in the word, the more allergic you become to the world. And I guarantee you those who are comfortable with the world is because they're not very far deep in the word. You, you, you just can't, you just can't, Reconcile those two pieces. You can't be in love with the world. And we say, well, I'm not in love with the world. Well, you can't be comfortable with the world and at the same time be comfortable throughout the word. The digger you deep here in the word, the further it will separate you from the thoughts of the world. So one, one great way of measuring where man is at in that is, is, is seeing not just how much he says he loves God's word, but how much he hates the world. And of course, the evidence of that, as we see in the psalmist, is what? 
Well, the evidence of that is how he lives out his faith. The evidence of that is how he responds to truth. The evidence of that, of, of that love for instruction that he describes here, as a matter of fact, he uses the word, I love your, your law. You know, he's not, like, he's not saying, oh, I love the fact that God's a loving God, God's a kind God, I love his grace. He said, I love your law, your instruction. So he's describing that piece that we would normally feel more uncomfortable with, the more restrictive one, right? I love your law, I love your instruction. It's easy for us to say, well, I love God because he's a gracious God. He's a forgiving God. He's a loving God. He's a, he says, I love your, your instruction. So he is expressing that the man of God is diametrically opposed to any or all manifestation of falsehood, deception, deceit. It's so, so hard. It's such a battle for you. But I tell you what, it's such a battle for your children. Because you're so exposed to all forms of wickedness. And, and, and some of it you cannot escape. Some of it you can, of course, train them to filter these things. But it's so hard when, when they have access and they see and hear. And the reality is because of the way society is going to continue to go, there's going to be this, this deluge, this, this, the dam has been broken. It's almost like COVID broke that dam that now there, there, there's like no more, I don't know why it's associated with that, but there's like no more restraint. Society has just been flooded and your children are, are absorbing it. There's only one way for them to be immune and protected and guarded, and that's to be in the Word. And the best place for them to be in the Word is to be in church. It's just his. It's not in the little league's football team. It's in church. Where they're surrounded. Because God's word is the only thing that's going to vaccinate them and protect them against the, the onslaught of immorality, of falsehood that's going to flood their thoughts, flood their minds, flood their ears. The only way... We're going to guard that is to pour God's truth and give them a love and passion for God's truth. And the way, only way they're going to live that is if they see it in your own life. The only way they're going to be convinced of that is that they, if you've modeled it and you continue to model it. And it begins by being in a place that elevates the teaching of God's word. That's where it begins. Being in a place where God's word is preached. Where we're not the, the primary focus. God, teaching of God's word, of course, the pulpit and we've discussed that here is church life is about uh, living out the truth of God's word amongst, us, amongst believers. And, but being in a place where we have a common love and passion for the instruction of God's word, of his law. But the contrast between these two, between a fear of man versus a fear of God, is, is contrasted with a, a hatred and disgust for one and a love for God's law. For God's law, the greater disgust—I mentioned that—the greater the disgust for falsehood, the greater the love for the word. The greater the love for the word, the more hatred there is for a lie. We have a great challenge before us, and I pray, even as parents, that we can we can encourage us, encourage each other, in that in that in that way to encourage our children to be surrounded by by truth and pouring in the truth of God's word. Verse one sixty-four. He says, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rule. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rule. Godly praise rooted in the character and nature of God. 
Remember, he's making these affirmations of, of personal integrity, personal stands as to where he stands. Godly praise. He says, I will praise you seven times a day because of all because all your regulations are just. The first word here, the first time, actually, uh, the word to praise is used in Psalm. He'll use it in his doxology in the last stanza to come here in just a few verses to follow. But it means to be, the, the, the word to praise means to be deeply and sincerely thankful. Rooted in praise is gratefulness, is thankfulness. You can't praise and not be thankful. And you can't be thankful without praising. Those two are inseparable. And also the other flip side of that, that it also demonstrates or connotates a, a depending. So there's two aspects of that word, praise. One, it reflects a, a deep-seated thankfulness. The other part, it, it reflects a, a deep uh, dependence, satisfied in something. So when you're satisfied and you depend and you're content with something. So those two aspects fuel that idea of what it means to praise. And he, he set the stage for his last stanza, what it means to praise the Lord. But praising the Lord is rooted in two things, one, gratefulness and thankfulness, and two, a total dependency on that as well. Praise is our weapon of choice against our enemies. Is it, is it no surprise that we live, we live in a society that fuels in what? What's one of the key words we hear a lot today about what, what are people today? They're, they're victims. We're, we lived in the victimization of society. We see that in, 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 in counseling because labels, labels allow you to have a, a victimization status. Now, I'm not suggesting that there are not labels that help people identify the, their academic needs, for example. But there's so much there that's there to try to, to victimize people and label them in such a way that, well, it's because of this or that. And, and in doing so, undermine our ability to what? To praise and be grateful to the Lord and be dependent fully on him and, and reflect that in our praise to him. The seven times, of course, is more symbolic than it is arithmetic. It represents a pattern of life. It represents something that uh, pervades all aspects of life. Isn't it amazing that a lot of, in a lot of religious cultures, we try to have this certain amount of prayers, even in Catholicism, you take the, the, the prayers and the Holy Marys and you do those uh, 25 times and, and I'll be penance for this, or in Islam you pray uh, so many times a day, and then in Catholicism you do this. There's always this mechanical aspect. He's not what he's describing here. He's describing a pervasive lifestyle that, that pervades rather, that pervades all aspects of life. Many times, it could be translated many times, or constantly would be an appropriate uh, translation to this verse as well. And notice we also, we notice the object of his praise. He describes godly praise. Says, I will praise you seven times a day. Why? Because all your regulations are just. Again, his, his, his attention is drawn to what? To God's rule, God's law, God's, even described here, his the, the regulations of his law. Again, most of us, when we, we, it's easy to, to sing hallelujah to, you know, we love you, Lord, and, and we're yours and you're ours. And, and uh, we, we, we sing all these praises that, of things that, we, that are appealing to us. But he's, he, he in, emphasizes, he accentuates the, the, the idea of 
of God's regulation, your regulations are just, are good. We talked about the previous standard, right? Talking about the, well, two over, talking about the righteousness of God, the goodness of God. He, he laid the foundation for that in a previous stanza. The psalmist here, his focus is God's righteous and good rule. That's the subject of his thanks. That's the subject of his rejoicing. That's what he is, he is claiming and holding on to, of God's righteous and good rule, how he exercises his judgment, how his justice is manifested, how his goodness is revealed through his instruction, and in that, through his direction for life. So he, he brings about these truths, and he, he describes them. He said his, his focus is God's righteous and good rule. And again, what I found interesting, and we're going to do, we'll look at that next Sunday, is that in his final praise to God, I discover the point that he's making not only in God's sovereignty over his circumstances in life, but God's sovereignty over his thoughts as well, and God giving him understanding as well. So he'll unpack that in, in the next stanza. Verse 165, godly peace is rooted in the love of God's word. He said, those who love your instructions have great peace and do not stumble. Those who love your instructions have great peace and they do not stumble. So let me ask you, whenever you're, whenever you're troubled, whenever you're persecuted, whenever you're facing difficulties, what, what is your struggle? What is your temptation? The reality is that the one question that you should be asking yourself, that I need to ask myself, is what am I not believing about God in that moment? That's a pretty powerful question to ask. As I'm facing a situation, I'm asking myself, you know, I say all these right things, but I'm still like struggling with this, and why God this, why God that? And I, I, the reality is, is, Lord, what am I not believing about you? What am I not believing about your word? Because his word is his revelation of who he is. So what am I not believing about his word, and what am I not believing about him? That's tough to say in that moment, is it not? But I believe this to be true. Listen, folks, there are many days where I struggle. I'm not at peace. It's very easy for the, for the water to, to start overrunning. I've got this sometimes a sense, okay, I've got it under control. You ever feel that way? Okay, I got this. I got that, that dam patched up well. There's a little hole here. I'll patch that up real quickly, and I got this. Then you see that little cartoon I saw years ago, that little Dutch, you know, and, and the one little hole, and he's trying to sound the alarm, and then there's another hole, and then the, there's days where I feel like there's more holes, and I've got fingers to plug. More time than once, I, I felt, I don't like, you, I tell you what, you'll probably never hear me use the term overwhelmed. I hate the term overwhelmed. Everybody's overwhelmed today. Yeah, I overate at lunch. I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> I had, yeah, flat tire, man. I'm overwhelmed. You know, I had one last week. We're overwhelmed so easily. But I have to be. I have to be true to, 
and allow God to examine my heart. And in the moment where I'm struggling and I don't have great peace, not just, okay, I'm okay. It's all right. I'm okay. I'm all right. No, great peace comes from deep-rooted deep love for his instruction. And in that moment where peace is fading away, Carl and I have been discussing, you know, he's going to be covering these positions. As we're, you know, we've got this clock ticking. There's going to be classrooms with kids. Will there be teachers is another question. Who's going to fill those spots? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? Every one of you in your own area of life, you can feel that way very quickly. The desire is, what, is to have great peace. Not just, ah, I'm okay. No, great peace. Why? The love for your instructions. And what? He says, and great peace, and do not stumble. And do not stumble. The children of God, characterized by a love for God and his word, possess great peace. This peace is clearly an internal condition. And we see that consistently with the psalmist, right? You never see solutions to this problem from a human perspective. You see a change of heart. You see him recalibrating his heart. You don't see, you don't see the outworking of that by saying, okay, hey, I'll, fix, I'll take that off your plate. He actually comes and, and learns in contemplating God to trust him to rest in him and find great peace in him. The praise of our lips will lead to peace in our hearts. And with this peace comes the assurance of being protected from stumbling. A byproduct of love for the law is the protection that God grants. The closer you are to the law, the safer you are from stumbling. The closer I walk in this truth, the safer I am. You know, you try to explain that to your children when they're really young. Hold my hand. I got this, Dad. Hold my hand. Now, I've seen some go, the ex- go too far. Explain, hold my hand, there's creepers everywhere. No, just hold my hand. You know, <laughs> don't instill fear in them. Instill obedience in them. But a byproduct is the closer I am in the Word. Do you believe that to be true? That the closer you walk to God's Word and obedience to God's Word, the closer and safer you are from stumbling? You say that the opposite is true as well, right? The more we grumble, the more we demonstrate unthankfulness, the more we argue with God and His Word, the more we resist submitting to the word, the more likely and more prone we are to stumbling. There's safety in God's word. There's protection in God's word. There's rejoicing in God's word. The last one, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish this one next week, is one of godly obedience. And then we'll pick up on the last stanza next week. Looking forward to next week's beautiful he has all the imperatives and the indirect imperatives in that, in that last stanza. He mentions Yahweh twice in that last stanza as well. So great doxology and finishes with praise. Next week, I encourage you to do as well, uh, as we finish up the Psalm 119 next week, that you would maybe consider sharing a, a, a verse that was 
significant to you out of these 176 verses, but maybe mention something, a verse that you want to share some next week. We're going to take a few minutes for that as well to try to um, complete our thoughts in Psalm 119. But it's been, it's been a great uh, study for me from my own heart. I've needed that many, many times. Yes, Mark? One quick thing. Uh, yep. It's so good that you talked about exposing the kids to being under the Word in the church. And all of our religion uh, is, is validated, or it's at least uh, exposing our kids to truth. But only, the, God has given parents so much authority in the home that the only thing that really matters is what you validate to the kid. In other words, what is valuable to the parent will be valuable to the kid. What's important to you will be important to them. So if we like our extracurricular activities, we like to be carnal because I, my kids, I can see their, some of their carnal behavior because of me. But I can see some of the things that were, was important to me in a Christian faith. So parents live for Christ because they validate whatever God is doing. Then God sets them up, the Holy Spirit brings them to a place mm. to make it valid later on in their Christian faith. So it's important to know that, that parents <clears throat> live for Christ because they're validating God. Well, thank you, Mark. All right, guys, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, give us a love. Lord, give us a love for your word. Give us understanding of your word. Help us to see your word as the great squirrels that it is, the great treasure that it is. Lord, every day we're confronted with wickedness and falsehood and lies and deceit. May we be drawn to your word. May you draw us to your word. And protect us, Lord, from falsehoods and from those who persecute us. Bless this coming week, Lord. May you guide and direct our thoughts. May we rejoice and find gratefulness and thankfulness in you. In your name we pray. Amen.